Welcome to Technado with Don Pizet, featuring sysadmin expert Don Pizet, DevOps engineer Justin Dennison, security specialist Daniel Lowry, and Peter. Welcome to Technado with Don Pizet. We actually have Don Pizet for this week, so we were able to find him uh, hiding out uh, in his home. Where, at, at your remote conference, how was that? I, I was in in the bunker. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> wait, do you have a bunker? <laughs> you don't. I do now. Thought everybody had a following yeah. Don home. <laughs> Got a bunker. <laughs> so undisclosed lo- location. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I was at the uh, the virtual conference for WSL Conf. It's the uh, Windows subsystem for Linux that Microsoft is putting on. So uh, the the team over at Canonical put the, uh, put that together in conjunction with Microsoft. It was a lot of fun. Uh, learned a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, but had to miss the podcast for it. Yeah. Uh, and then this week we got uh, Justin is out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we've replaced him with Wes Bryan. Wes, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. It's good to be here. I think this is the first one I've ever been on. This is an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you're taller. Taller, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. physically taller. Not in stature, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we also are joined uh, by our remote guest today, Aaron Cockrell. Aaron, how you doing? Hi, good, thanks. Uh, thank good you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And you are the chief strategist. Yeah, strategy officer. I knew I was going to mess that one up at Lookout. And Don, you mentioned you actually worked with Lookout before. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I I've used Lookout uh, mobile security on like my Android yeah. phones for years and years. I, I'm on iPhone right now, so I actually don't use it at this moment. But uh, on Android, I always had it installed. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's go ahead and jump right in and get to know Aaron a little bit more in our first segment. Rapid fire questions. Who do you work for? What's new? Who are you? What's happening? What's wrong with you? All right, Aaron. Uh, those aren't the questions, but we do have five minutes for this segment, so we will get to know you now. Um, and uh, we've got some good questions today, actually. So, um, first of all, you you deal with phishing uh, all the time. So, how common uh, is is phishing in the enterprise right now? So, we've been protecting um, uh, both consumer and enterprise users for a while now from phishing, uh, as was mentioned before. So, uh, what's really interesting to us is there's been an increase, dramatic increase in the number of users in enterprise that are being targeted uh, by phishing attacks on mobile, which specifically what we're talking about is not one of those emails that say you've got, you know, a million dollars waiting for you in Africa somewhere. This is more a link that's sent to you, not necessarily even in email as SMS or something like that. They'll get you to click on a page that's mobile specific, that'll get you to enter your credentials and then your, your ID's been stolen. So we see about one in 50 users attacked like that daily in the enterprise space. Wow. I, yeah, wow. that happens to me all the time. <laughs> but, yeah, so do you believe uh, CISOs uh, understand the difference in the risk of mobile phishing uh, versus, uh, you know, desktops and laptops? Uh, I do, um, but it, it's here's the thing. When he talks about most CISOs, it's not like they don't understand that this is a problem. It's more that typically they're not measuring it. So... If you look at what they're using typically to defend against this type of attack, they've got typically a secure web gateway and uh, an email gateway protecting their corporate environment, but they've got nothing monitoring when a user gets sent a link over SMS or when a user get an employee gets sent a link over Facebook Messenger. So they've got no visibility into this, and that's one of the biggest problems, and that's why the bad guys have uh, started attacking this area. 
So I, I think that's a funny question because uh, for me, I, up until like this very second, I didn't really differentiate uh, phishing from like on the desktop to versus mobile. Uh, and in fact, I'm, I'm still kind of a little shaky on this because I, so I, I get phishing attempts all the time. Um, I've received at least three emails today that are phishing emails and I'm certain two phone calls. So for me, that all goes into my email inbox and my email inbox is the same if I'm on the desktop or if I'm on my mobile device. So why why would an attacker want to focus on a mobile device or, or even how? How would they focus on that? So great question. A couple of um, different reasons. The first one is think about when you receive that email on your mobile device and there's a link in there and it could be shortened or whatever. How do you hover over it? You can't. The, so you can't actually see what the where the link genuinely goes on a mobile email client typically. In addition to that, when you do click on links, um, usually the URLs are truncated, so you can't read them, and often the address bar hides. Or even um, uh, worse than that, think of you're thinking specifically about email. Um, these links could be coming in SMS, they could be coming in Facebook Messenger, or any of those different mechanisms. And so you're also predisposed to trust many of the um, you know the social platforms that end up sending you these links. So. It's, it's very different to corporate email because most people, un, well, firstly, corporate email filters do a great job of filtering this stuff out. But secondly, when it's sent to you in a personal context, you have a much higher level of trust associated with, say, for example, who it comes from, if it's an SMS from your wife, which is easily spoofed, as we know. Now, Aaron, uh, as a security professional, I know what I do to protect myself when I have a fish come in on my email throw my phone on the ground, I smash it, I burn it with fire. Yeah. That usually <laughs> takes care of the problem. And now you're offering me Lookout here. So what can you tell us about what Lookout does to protect us mobile users? So the most important aspect of us is we add to what is done in email. Um, maybe not in quite the same way that you re react, but what we do <laughs> maybe. is we filter, <laughs> we filter all of the network interfaces on a mobile device. And, and that's really important because your mobile device is connecting to lots of different Wi-Fi networks all the time. It's connecting to the cellular network, which is typically unfiltered, um, and it's connecting through paired connections and all sorts of things. You know, if it's a tablet through you know Bluetooth, and so we we filter on for malicious or phishing links on all of those interfaces, regardless of where the uh, device is connecting. In fact, the best way to think about technology even though um, it's uh, referred to as a phishing solution, it's from a technologist perspective, it's more like a secure web gateway on the mobile endpoint. Because you've got to think of all of these devices are now outside the perimeter. They're no longer reliant on the corporate security perimeter. So you've got to move those services like secure web gateways out to the endpoint. So that's what Lookout's done. And it, and it's funny, Daniel, the, the reason they're called Lookout is because that's what you're supposed to yell before you throw the phone exactly. at the ground. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is injure someone. Now, yeah. that, now that I can automate the setting on a fire, yeah. you know, <laughs> just through an app, yeah. it's, it's well, really it, nice. Samsung did that, right? Wasn't it yeah. the Note 7? <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, it just, yeah, people didn't know that's why. It's yeah. because it's like oh, you got a fish. It yeah. looks like we've got a fish here. We're going to set this on fire and... Now you can't bring it on planes anymore. Uh, all right. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears now uh, to our next segment, which is big news this week. And now the news. 
Well, you probably guessed what the big news is if you're actually watching these in order and not like going back uh, years from now in a time capsule. Uh, but this this is coronavirus week. Um, <laughs> it's something we do every year for ratings. No. Uh, it's also St. Patrick's Day, but we're not going to mention that. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Two of us are wearing green, uh, so that's pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a muted St. Patrick's Day. Um, but yeah, and, and I, I say coronavirus week because this is the week that it kind of went from zero to 100 in terms of um, the the U.S. response and uh and as we've seen things change just from from last week here, but uh, a big uh, a big side effect of that is people are working from home. I mean, Aaron, that's what you're doing right now, and that's what a lot of people are doing. And so, security that that's uh, that's a big issue for us right now. Yeah, you know, there, there's a couple of different risks that we're exposed to. I mean, obviously, the risk of, of getting sick is is there, right? But that doesn't necessarily change based on what your career is. But in IT, we have a lot of companies that are rushing employees to be able to work from home that even a week ago had never worked from home. Right. So some people have laptops that are already set up to be secure when they go home and work remotely. Right. If, if you're in a, a modern business that's deployed in the cloud, it's probably a no, not, not really a big deal. It's just kind of work as normal. But if you're somebody who has a desktop at work and now you're being asked to work from home, now we have all sorts of new exposure that you might be using a home computer or a tablet, a, you know, a, who knows, a Kindle Fire or something crazy like that. Some <laughs> device that necessarily hasn't been vetted by the IT department. And yet we're still expected to keep that secure and safe and to make sure that our customer data doesn't get out there. Because even though there's this uh, epidemic going on, we don't necessarily say, well, let's pause GDPR, let's pause HIPAA, <laughs> let's pause all this other stuff. So we still have to live up to that. And now we're in a really adverse condition. So um, what I'm curious about, and, and Aaron, you can probably shed some some light on this, is uh, is there a bigger risk now that people are like newly working from home? Are, are they, obviously they're not going to have some of the protections from work when they get home, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I was mentioning before, that the fact that you're working from home typically means that you're working from outside the corporate security perimeters from a networking perspective. But there's, um, and uh, one of the points that you raise is also uh, actually Lookout's been sought out to solve this problem. As a result of the coronavirus, there's um, obviously lots more people being asked to support the health uh, healthcare industry and it, it, they look like emergency services type people and volunteers and, uh, and across the um, board. And of course, all of those individuals are now working with information that's in, uh, under regulatory control under HIPAA. And so we have to, just like you said, we can't pause GDPR, we equally can't pause HIPAA, yet we're asking volunteers to come in and help with uh, looking after people, and a lot of that is using their own devices that are unmanaged and so on. So yeah, it, it's presenting a big challenge. And a lot of people now, uh, you know, before working from home, man, I, I had a computer at home. And, you know, Don, I know you do a lot of the work on your, you know, iPad Pro. Mm -hmm. um, I'll look at my phone if it if it rings and, and see, um, you know, what messages are coming in. And, and I think about, oh, if I'm on the computer, I better be on my VPN. Um, you know, but when I'm, if I'm checking an email on, on the mobile device and then I click a link and, and, uh, you know, spend 10 minutes doing something there, I'm not, I'm not thinking that same way. Is that, is that something that, that Lookout helps out with? Yeah, definitely. That's that's specifically what the um, phishing protection does. Because you're, like I said before, you're you're outside that security perimeter, and so that's where we can jump in and and stop malicious links getting to the end users that are using unmanaged devices at home. So, um, have you seen uh, an uptick in in requests and people reaching out to you, and uh, you know how how things have been going for you guys? Yeah, um, dramatic uptick in that 
particular area. So mm-hmm. specifically where users are being asked to work from home, um, in the healthcare industry, uh, and also in the emergency response um, areas. Yeah, what I'm seeing is that, uh, you know, when when people use something like an iPad, right? So we'll use my iPad as an example. It's encrypted by default, right? Apple does that. And it's it's relatively secure from that standpoint. Uh, and when I use an application like Microsoft Outlook, right, that's connecting to my Office 365 account. So it's a cloud account. It's being stored on encrypted storage. It can be remote wiped by an administrator. So there's a, a lot of security in place. When I'm here at the office, I'm passing through the company's firewall and I'm in a secure facility, right? We have key carded doors and all that. So it's an extra level of security. But when I'm at home, sure, I still have the same level of security on my iPad, but I don't have key carded doors at home and I don't have a web filter at home. So I'm in theory browsing the completely unfiltered web. And it's up to me to exercise self-discipline to not click on that link, to hover over a link before going to it versus when you're at the office and things are getting scanned. Now, one challenge that we're bumping into, and and actually I, I mentioned this affects you guys, Aaron, is that when I install our security, like say I have a user who's going to work from home and they say they're going to use their personal computer. We install a security suite on there. That's going to be scanning every URL they click on. And so there's a big privacy concern when it's a company machine. That's our machine. We own it, so we can scan whatever we want. But when it's their home computer, we can't differentiate between when they're just doing casual Facebook on their own time versus doing work anymore. So have you bumped into privacy concerns with that? Because you guys have to scan URLs as well. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. We run into that all the time, actually. Um, so what specifically our product does in that area is when when a user clicks on a link that could be phishing or malicious, we don't actually notify the administrator, nor do we even capture that URL specifically. We notify the user that, uh, sorry, the administrator that this device was exposed to a phishing link or exposed to a uh, malicious link and we blocked it. Um, we can even notify the administrator to say that this user has clicked on a malicious link and it appears that they've interacted with it. And so that's highlighted as an issue, but we don't say what that link was or what the URL was, what the domain was or anything like that on an unmanaged or, or personally owned machine. Uh, because obviously it's, you know, it's pretty, <laughs> where your, brow- your browsing history is pretty telling about your lifestyle and so on. So it's, it's highly private information. And let's just keep it at that. <laughs> uh, we do inappropriate content filtering as well, but the, the, we focus on the phishing and malicious. Well, what's inappropriate to you is... Yes. Inappropriate. <laughs> yes, it's not, it's not inappropriate to me, but it's on my yeah. computer. So. He just loves it. <laughs> yeah. So i got to switch computers now when I'm at home. This is great. There's that Brave browser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, believe it or not, there is other news out in the world um, other than, uh, than just coronavirus. Hackers seem to not have... Uh, yeah, they don't take a break. Yeah, yeah, which is disappointing. They're still like quarantining themselves in their mom's basement. Yeah, they're, they're like, <laughs> we've been doing this for, for our whole lives. We're ready. Yeah. So, hey, uh, we're going to get to that news. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back here on Technado with Don Pizzette. Welcome to IT Pro TV, an e-learning company with thousands of hours of engaging video training for IT professionals with fresh content added daily. What makes IT Pro TV stand out? It all starts with our edutainers who create better than classroom experiences for training you look forward to watching. So an edutainer is someone who takes a topic, an, an educational topic, and makes it more fun, enjoyable. My vision for IT Pro TV was to make the product that I wish I had when I got started. 
The dashboard's great because you can pick up right where you left off, you can see new courses that are available, and you also have access to a variety of study tools with a membership. Follow along with virtual labs and test your skills with practice tests. And unlike traditional training, you aren't handcuffed to your desk. Sure, you can watch from there or from your couch with Apple TV and Roku apps or from anywhere with mobile apps. The training is even available for download. If you're ready to watch and learn with the IT pros, check out the flexible membership choices online today at www.itpro.tv. All right, welcome back to Technated with Don Pizzette. We are uh, having some fun here. We're talking, well, we're having some fun. We're talking about coronavirus. Never mind. We're not having fun. We're having a bad You kind of look like you're having fun. Yeah, I know. I'm smiling. Uh, yeah, we're talking to Aaron Cockerell here, um, and uh, we're, we're talking about the news. So let's go ahead and, and jump right in with our first article of the day, which is over at PCWorld.com. How Intel is changing the future of power supplies with its ATX 12VO spec. A major change will rejigger, I don't like that word, the balance of power <laughs> in PC power supplies for the first time in 20 years. And, you know, I that's one of the parts of a computer that you don't think about, you know, you think about the chips and, and all these things are, are upgrading, but the power supply, I, I can't tell you the last time I heard of, oh, did you hear about the new, you know, changes to power yep. supply? So this has got to be exciting for you, and I know you're, you're a big hardware guy. Wes? Power supplies. Oh, good, Wes. Oh, no, I was going to say this is a big change because a lot of it's just hidden under the radar. You go from like a 2 to a 2.1 to a 2.2, and it adds like little efficiency. A, a 2 this what? A, uh, version, right? Oh, oh okay. Just a, just a little version hit, number. Yeah, a okay, okay, version yeah. number. And you don't hear it, but this is a major restructuring here. Yeah, power supplies haven't changed much over. Uh, ATX was standardized, what, like 20 years ago now, and it hasn't changed much at all. Uh, you have heard about like when they, when they switched to the metal colorings, the bronze and platinum and gold based on power. Power efficiency. Power efficiency has really been getting better each year, but it's kind of reached a point where it's as efficient as it's going to get. And so now they're trying to find new ways to make the power supply more efficient. And with the ATX 12 VO standard, they are dropping the, uh, what is it, Wes? 3.3? 3.3 in the 5 volt rail because, well, 5 volt rail is uh, used, but the 3.3 volt rail is uh, not really used much. Yep. And so th those were extra power supply or power rails or cables, basically, that were used for things like floppy disk and uh, uh, some of the older hard drives would did, use those. Did those connectors. need more power or? They need less. They need less power. Yep. Okay. And, and we don't have those devices anymore. And almost everything else in your computer is standardized on 12 volts. So with the new ATX12VO standard, they're going to basically say, look, your power supply is only going to put out 12 volts. And that allows them to be more efficient because they don't have to have the extra transformers in there. So that's good. But a lot of people are still going to be using 5 volts for various little things. So that means the motherboards are going to have to incorporate some kind of transformer to provide that alternate power. And that means more components on the motherboard. And while motherboards don't fail very often, power supplies do. So I imagine this will lead to an increased failure rate in motherboards until people start phasing out that power standard. Yeah, some some of the things I think of is reduced cost in your power supplies because there's less uh, you know um, components within it, but then probably drive up the cost on the motherboards a little bit because we do still use 5 volt if you think about USB, uh, USB in your solid state drives, but they'll probably just move the voltage regulation right onto the motherboard itself, which means, again, it's going to drive up the cost a little bit. And one of the things that's challenging with bringing speeds up on a motherboard is the electrical 
electrical noise. Well, if you have voltage regulation that's going on on the motherboard, it can increase the noise too. So you could see increased interference uh, as well. But you're not uh, you're not saying like actual audio noise. You're saying the noise, noise electromagnetic the, yeah, interference. Yeah, because yeah, okay. it's a voltage. You know, it's electrical current, and the faster you go, that's more electrical current. So sure. if you're putting more of those components, you've got to shield different it. things. Or... Exactly. So you're going to probably see that uh, motherboard cost will go up a little bit. So they definitely have to work work together. But the article was saying that the um, – will that be offset by the the reduced cost in the power supplies? Because they're saying the power supplies should become cheaper. Yeah, that I'm not exactly sure. Well, yeah. for, for people that are buying entirely assembled units. Right. These are yeah. for it's a wash, like right? built like right. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a build-it-yourselfer, you you're know, you'll – still the old school. Yep. And think, it'll probably take a year or two for this to even really start to get out and out. Yeah, they said there's going to be a bit of a – or there is a bit of a standoff between – Motherboard builders and power supply builders are like, well, as soon as you build that power supply, we'll give you a motherboard. No, no, no. We need a motherboard. So this power supply has something to shoehorn into. Oh, hold on there, sir. You know, and it's kind of back and forth. The schoolyard so fight. Yeah. No, you hit me first. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So uh, do we think that this is going to be more efficient as well, or is that not, not part of it? It said efficiency was definitely going to go up. Okay. By, by having those less components. Yeah. And yeah. I, I like the study that they showed how one power supply maker did basically a, um, a survey on what components were using the 3.3 and the 5 volts uh, specs. And I went down a, a complete 5% mm-hmm. of usage over the last 10 years, and they're expecting that to go down even further. So it just makes sense that it's the time for the new power supply standard to come out. Yep. It most definitely is. That's one of the reasons they adjusted the ATX standard. The last major revision of it is because they included an extra 3.35 and 12-volt rail to include the PCIe bus architecture, which is power-hungry. But if you're not using it and you've got a system that's not really implementing it other than just communication across the motherboard, why do you need the extra power? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to fall asleep over there. <laughs> I don't know what the things are that that's Wes right. said. So I'm going to move on to the next article uh, then, and that's from Silicon It's about motherboards. <laughs> oh, God, again. <laughs> no, I understand some of the words in this one, too. Uh, VMware embraces Kubernetes in its biggest product blitz in a decade. And this is when it's sad that Justin's not here to talk about, because... Uh, he embraces Kubernetes all Every the time, day. I feel like. Yeah. But uh, I was really hoping to give a damn. So was there anything, <laughs> <laughs> was there anything else big in the, uh, in the product blitz from VMware? All right, so one? VMware did a whole host of product announcements just last week. Uh, you know, they, they released VMware vSphere 7. And if, if we were filming this podcast five years ago, people would be really excited because VMware dominated the enterprise virtualization market. But now, since most people have shifted into the cloud, People have been talking about VMware going out of business for a while. Well, VMware has taken the stance of, yes, enterprise virtualization is not that big of a deal anymore, but trying to support more than one environment is. So maybe you have some servers in the cloud, some servers on-prem, maybe you have some in AWS and some in Microsoft Azure, and you want to be able to manage that all through one platform. And so they have pivoted. And with vSphere 7, they are now offering basically hybrid management of multiple environments, and they have completely embraced Kubernetes, which is really funny because people viewed containers as like the VM killer, and they're saying, well, no, you still need to manage those containers. If you want to deploy a container on-prem, clone it up into AWS, clone it over into Azure, have it run from all three places simultaneously, you can manage it all in one place inside of vSphere. So that's pretty cool. They've actually incorporated uh, Bitnami virtual machines. So if you want to deploy a WordPress server, you don't have to install an operating system and install WordPress. You just pull the Bitnami image and uh, and it comes right in and, and fires up, uh, runs in a container or a VM you pick. So really neat stuff that they're doing there and keeping their product relevant. 
Were they supposed to have a conference? Was that because normally you make these kind of announcements at a conference? Did they have one that was canceled? Uh, I don't. Yeah, VMworld, they do VMworld every year, but I think I, I think that was later in the year. year. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting though. That kind of an off-cycle um, big announcement, but uh, exciting nonetheless. <laughs> I, Daniel, don't worry. We have a security <laughs> article coming up. <laughs> so we're going to get to it, and, and and then we'll we'll bring in uh, you know Aaron there to, to talk about that as well. Unless unless Aaron, you have thoughts about VMware's big announcement about Kubernetes. I think it's great. See? Right. I'm on the same it's page. It's about yeah. time. We're on the same page. That's what I've been saying for years. Uh, all right, let's take a look over now at Pharonix uh, for our next article. Amazon AWS launches Linux-based bottle rocket for hosting containers. Some more container news. Container but uh, mm-hmm. bottle rocket, is that, that's, a, that's an AWS service, right? Yeah, it's an in-house thing. Now, they've open sourced it, so you can run it in your own on-prem hardware if you want. Uh, it's basically a Linux distro that they have built kind of custom style. Uh, it is designed to run in a read-only mode, so you're not allowed to write to the file system at all. And it has a, uh, a subsystem built on top of it, basically, uh, built entirely in Rust that's designed to run containers. So here's an operating system you're not meant to mess, to mess with. You deploy this OS, and it just serves as your container platform. And so you deploy your containers like crazy on top. You can run it on-prem. You can run it in AWS, and it's nice and safe. And you actually, if you deploy it in AWS with the Bottle Rocket service, you don't have access to that underlying service. It's kind of hidden from you, and it uses a a technology that you might have heard batted around called DM Verity, where every file, every file block across the entire file system of the host OS is digitally hashed. And anytime it reads a file or reads a block off of that disk, it checks the hash. So if any modification happens to it, it knows and it red flags and it shuts the system down. So it's, in theory, a unhackable file system. Not necessarily an unhackable OS, but the file system is in lockdown. Might as well be burned to a CD, really, right? So, you know, you can modify in RAM. Uh, but it's designed to be a ultra-fast, ultra-stable container host. Uh, and it's open-sourced, so anybody can run it today. It's like Nopix for containers. <laughs> Yeah. Remember Nopix? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah there's, there's several uh, OSs that have tried this, uh, you know, just as a simple OS, but being tied to an Amazon service like this, that gives it a lot more credibility. You know, you can get support on it. So if you're locked out from the image, you don't have to worry about updates. They're handling all that on the back end and everything. Right. right? No, I mean, you can still screw up your container. Okay. Right. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you can package all sorts of out of date libraries in a container. Gotcha. So what's the use case for something like this as a, you know, as a business? Like, what, what would I be? using Bottle sure. Rocket for. So the, the main thing would be like, if you're a developer and you want to create the app on your laptop and then you want to deploy inside of AWS, right? Now, you already know you can use Docker or whatever to create a container. It's in one format. You can easily deploy that up into AWS. But the challenge is having the environment be the same on both ends. So, you know, maybe you've got Windows, which kind of sucks as a Docker platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're deploying into AWS on Linux and now you've got a, you know, a, a true Docker platform. Well, it, it doesn't match up. So in these scenarios, you could actually be running the Bottle Rocket OS image, you can run it in a virtual machine or whatever, and develop your, your containers right there in the same type of environments that we need to go and deploy it in AWS. It works the same way. Now, there's already technologies that let you do that. Uh, there's a few different ones in AWS that do container hosting. But in this case, you also get the benefit of it's designed in a Rust-based language, which is really fast. You know, People are really excited about the performance of Rust, and they kind of view it as the way of the future. So there. No, I think, that, I think that, <laughs> that explained it succinctly for me there. So is uh, the the actual servers at AWS, are, are they running on their own distro as well? Like, do they have, 
or they or weren't they using they Red use Hat? Magic. They use they use a, <laughs> a CentOS derivative. Okay. Uh, so they're kind of based on Red Hat. But so something that they've that they've tweaked for yeah. themselves. Yeah, okay. it's called Amazon Linux, but it it is basically just a fork of CentOS. Is that out there for anybody that wants to use as well? Yeah. I don't know why you would, but. I don't either. Like, I mean, you certainly could, but it's very stripped down. They removed yeah. a ton of stuff, so a lot of the packages that we want to mess with aren't necessarily in it. Uh, from a server side, you certainly could use it, but for a desktop side, absolutely not. That'd be weird if like Azure was like, yeah, we're going to use that. <laughs> they could. <laughs> yeah, why, why, why reinvent the wheel? Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, all right, we're going to stay on Pharonix for our next article here. System D 245 released. Uh, first version including System D Home D. It sounds like a prize at the end of a game <laughs> show. You get the what System D Home V. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, you're, you're not going home empty-handed. No. So, Home D, what? what, what I, we so, I, I threw this article in the list because I couldn't remember if we previously covered System D Home D on the podcast or not. I don't remember saying um, something that dumb. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, home directories in any Linux and Unix-based system uh, have worked the same way forever, since the 1970s, that basically every user account has a home directory. That home directory is defined in the passwd file. And it's perfect. And yeah, <laughs> you get that. When the directory is created, it copies another folder, slash etc, slash skel, or skel. Uh, so it copies the contents of that into your folder. That's where that comes from. There is a umask that defines the default permissions for your home directory. And there's all these different moving pieces that go together to create a user's home directory. And when you move from system to system to system, those settings don't always match, and it creates a lot of confusion. So there's been a movement to change all of that, to roll it all up into one place, into a service that's a part of system D, right, the system daemon, and to have a home directory daemon or home D. And home D will define whether or not you have a home directory, where the home directory is stored, what the permissions are like that are on that, who has access to it, and so on, all in one place. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to bring all those settings together. Well, that's a pretty big change. And so when this was first announced about seven months ago, I think. Uh, a lot of people were concerned about it, but then it kind of disappeared for a while. Well, now System D 245 was released. That's the, the newest version of System D. Uh, so it's it's not going to be in Ubuntu or RHEL or whatever today, but probably in the next six months to a year, it will. And that's the first version to feature System D Home D. So this revamp of how user home directories are, are working is coming, right? So it's, it's like winter. Winter is coming. Okay. Uh, in this case, you, you got to plan for it, and you don't have to use it. It's kind of an optional thing for now, but eventually it will become the way of managing home directories, and it'll be very important. Actually, I was reading the um, comments below in the in the article, and they were saying that uh, they think that uh, Ubuntu has missed the boat on HomeD just because you know they have life cycles in which they release long-term supported operating systems, and this just missed it. Yeah, that's coming up and soon. And right? so you'll probably yeah, have next to get, month. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a rollout version. I don't know. It's not that big a deal. I know. Right? It's, it's, so 20.04. You know Linux users, man. <laughs> <laughs> they are the worst. Yes. Oh, I that's actually, a weird thing. 20.04 comes out next month. comes out in April. Uh, and that'll be a long-term support. They'll support it for six years, eight years. Six? I think LTS is six. Four six days. Years. Three and three, yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, so six years. Uh, but, you know, we'll have 20.10 later on, and maybe that gets it. Or or worst case scenario, you got to wait for 22.04, two years. Mm. That, that's not well, a big deal. That. Yeah. Aaron, are you a, a Linux guy? I'm always curious to know people's uh, distro of choice. Um, Mac OS. Mac OS, okay. That guy gets it. 
Well, you know, so <laughs> so Mac OS, right? Based on BSD, BSD, it has all the home directory stuff that I talked about earlier, but it doesn't have System D, and so uh, not not a risk there. I remember the first time we did an article about System D, and uh, I, I think I called it Systemed. System. Yeah. I just assumed like, oh, it's one of those new startups where they just drop the vowels. Then Don started talking about it, and his nose started to bleed just slowly. <laughs> Every time I say System D, I think Tenacious D. Yeah, it's just, a little bit yeah. different. Jack Black should have come out. Stop that. That is what they would use for sure. Uh, hey, our next article uh, is actually not an article at all. Uh, it is a tweet. Uh, it is a tweet. And, well, it is a series of tweets. In fact, it is two tweets, which got very confusing uh, just in in the way. Twitter works, you know, that sometimes they put like one of two, two of two, but then they started this tweet with dates as well in the same format of number slash number. So it's like, wait, one of two and three of four and then three of nine? What's going on here? Uh, okay. So this is from Avast, uh, Avast underscore antivirus on Twitter. Uh, last week on March 4th, uh, Taviso, well, I guess it's a user's name, so we're not sure. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, reported a vulnerability <laughs> to us in one of our emulators, which in theory could have been abused for RCE. Then on March 9th, he released a tool to simplify the vulnerability analysis in the emulator. Today, to protect our hundreds of millions of users, we disabled the emulator. The disablement of the emulator won't affect the functionality of our AV product, which is based on multiple security layers. And uh, I don't want to just read to you, but I do want to read the first uh, comment because I thought it was great after this. So your engineer, or this is from David uh, Vatadiv. Uh, your engineers, yeah, I just wanted to give him that great credit. Oh, yeah. having his name. I know who he is me. now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, David. Uh, he says your engineers placed an unsandboxed JS inter, uh, interpreter running untrusted code by design inside your highly privileged, vast svc.exe process. This is not some unfortunate, easily overlooked bug. This is proof of utter incompetence regarding basic security architecture. <laughs> So uh, he's not pulling his punches there. And, and no. would you guys? And, they, and then they went, "You're stupid." <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. He says, "Nuh-uh." That's really <laughs> yeah. their response. So yeah, I mean, is is David right there? Kinda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know what what happened here is with the vast they they need to scan stuff and sometimes they get false positives. So when they see something that's brand new, a new file they've never seen before. If it's a binary, sometimes they got to run it to see if it's it's malware, and, and a lot of them will actually ship a copy back to the headquarters where it actually gets executed there and tested to see if it's malware or not. Well, in this case, it was JavaScript, and what they were saying was, hey, instead of shipping it back, we can just start up a quick JavaScript interpreter right here in process, run that JavaScript and see if it's bad. But the problem is it's running it in its space, which is not user space. You know, it's a privileged account. It has direct access to the kernel. It's antivirus software. It has to have that level of access. And so it could run just about any really nasty JavaScript code, and it would run it at its permission level. Now, if it's sandboxed, that's not a big deal, right? It can't get out. But they didn't sandbox theirs. It was running, and so it technically had whatever access the Avast software had. Yeah. Now, if Avast knew it was malware and was able to stop it, that's great. But if it was something that it didn't know about, it could then infect the whole system. Like, that was the big thing about it, though, was that the, the fact that it's it's fine that it does all those things where it takes malware, runs it, sees what it is. But the fact that it was not sandboxed, mm -hmm. the fact that it was not contained in a safe zone mm -hmm. to let that stuff run left it open to the possibility that you get remote code execution and say, hey, yeah, run that for me with your privileges because that's awesome. And it would go, oh, okay. That's what they, that was the problem. 
Yeah, when the when the military tests, you know, ammunition, they go out to the range. They don't go. Let's just try this one in the yeah. office because I don't want to look walk down this gun and see if there's any bullets in it. <laughs> so, Aaron, is this uh, without without the the mistakes? Uh, is this a similar process to to how um, you know you look at, uh, at at phishing attacks and things like that and and uh, identify if something is actually bad? Actually, it's a good question. It, it, it is. Um, and one of the things that we do is slightly unique is most of the secure web gateways that we were talking about before tend to look at websites as though they're coming from a desktop browser, Firefox, whatever, um, you know, uh, Chrome. They don't typically emulate looking at those websites from a mobile-specific browser um, or a mobile operating system. So we try and execute, uh, the, or at least not execute, but look at websites as though it's a mobile device. Um, we respond with mobile headers and so on. So our analysis is very mobile-specific, um, similar to the way these guys are doing uh, you know, sandboxing. So, I mean, obviously the way they could have avoided this is just doing this in a sandbox and... Yeah or, yeah, or not doing it at all, or sending it back to their own systems to execute it. Like, there's just, I mean, that's one of the big problems with antiviruses. They can tend to be a little uh, resource intensive, if, especially if it's running like a full scan or a deep scan or anything like that. So they're just trying to find ways to improve the user experience. And typically, that's that sliding scale of usability versus security, kind of like they tend to move each other up and down. And you get what you pay for, right? You Which know, is like free. Right? A vast, are they still they free? Have a, I don't remember. For many years, they were just completely free. And then they, oh, they have a free tier, tier now. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when you have something like that, you've got developers that are just trying their hardest to get features in there to make it fancy and exciting and whatever. And you end up with things that are not considered secure. ESET has gone through a lot of that as well. Um, they've got numerous black eyes over the years. Well, that uh, that is definitely a black eye there and uh, something that hopefully is voided in the future. Uh, so it is not a vulnerability for them. Uh, hey, Aaron. Um, if people want to find out more about Lookout, uh, which I assume they do, uh, lookout.com, is that the best place? Are there other places to to reach out with you or connect with you? Two places where I'd recommend they look. Obviously, lookout.com. But the other one, um, we've been publishing the results of our machine learning targeting um, phishing that's mobile-specific um, on a Twitter, since you guys are talking about a Twitter article at the moment, or were, um, which is phishing AI. So uh, the stuff that we capture that's phishing attacks that are even not necessarily targeted at our customers, we publish on um, phishing AI, and there's some interesting reading there. Oh, very cool. Definitely check that out. And yeah, I assume, uh, normally this is the part where I say, what trade shows are you going to coming up? But uh, <laughs> Which virtual cons are you that's going That's kind of on hold now, but you know, any, anything big coming out uh, in the future we should keep an eye out for, or just uh, you know, kind of stay, stay tuned to the website to see any, anything coming up? Yeah, everything is um, sort of virtual at the moment, so stay tuned to the website. Yeah. I'm supposed to be on a plane tomorrow. You can still go. <laughs> you can still be on that plane. You might be the only one yeah, on that. I mean, yeah. That's so the, I, I had a friend. He went on a, a flight the other day. He said there was like 20 people on the plane. That's so ridiculous. You need to worry when the pilots are working remotely. Yeah, if they're not there. <laughs> they, they fly themselves yeah, these days, they say, pretty much. Uh, but actually, it uh, kind of brings us to our next topic, which we'll just talk uh, briefly about. You know, everyone's looking for a little distraction here. Um, so we did something uh, at IT Pro TV um, back when the basketball – 
uh, tournament was still scheduled for the NCAA. Uh, it has since been canceled, but you can still play along with our little bracket if you head over uh, to go.itpro.tv slash bracket dash 2020. Uh, we did a bracket of the top. We didn't do 64 because uh, that would have been ridiculous once we started looking at them, but we did the top 32 operating systems and uh, and seeded them and asked you to kind of uh, face them off head to head and, and basically asking the question, if I had a computer right now that I was building, which of these two operating systems would I rather have on it? And so you're facing off uh, each one. What do you, look, can, I, can I take a peek at yours here, Wes? Sure, absolutely. So we've got like you know, Windows 2000 versus Vista, which is obviously a one seed versus a 32 seed uh, in that case, because I don't think anyone would pick Vista. But uh, Oh, I'd totally take Vista over 2000. Would you? Yeah, it's like a... I mean, just talking about like 20 years ago. But you got to think of it in, <laughs> I, I took it in terms of like my experience with that operating system when it was a valid yeah, it was operating a, system. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I thought you were sure, saying that's what yeah. I was as confused. If I was I like, pick today. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd pick no. this on a heartbeat. Yeah, you <laughs> no, you, you sucked, picked but. right, Wes. You went with 2000 there. But <laughs> Wes, your champion uh, in the break. Mine was Windows 7 just based on experience. I really like the operating system. Uh, unlike some of the my uh, cohorts here, uh, I don't change <laughs> operating systems once every couple weeks. Just like I'm not mentioning any names, Don. <laughs> I saw a few Windows 10s from uh, I think Mike Roderick uh, had that, and I think I think Cherokee had that as well. Uh, wh- wh- who'd, you, who'd you have? I... Uh, my ultimate winner ended up being Linux Mint. Okay, uh, I've had really good uh, experience. I think it's it's probably one of the better um, Linux versions that you could use or distributions for yeah. using as like a desktop as an everyday driver. It is a really phenomenal, very well polished uh, ver- uh, distribution of Linux. I'm a Linux user. I did have some um, some Windows come in there. I really enjoyed Windows 7. I thought it was a great operating system. Uh, Windows 2000 was another really good operating system. I used it for a long time. I thought it was great. Really what, what was your championship round there? Mint versus? Our championship round went from uh, with Fedora and Mint. Fedora and Mint. That's yep. a tricky one. And, and it was a hard one. And Don, I'm going to guess, uh, I, I specifically made sure OS2 was on there for you. <laughs> OS2 is on there. That's right. That, does that win at all? I think Justin had that uh, on his as well. I've got his bracket on my desk, and I think he was just kissing up to Don. <laughs> I saw OS2 on there. A lot of hard decisions on this one. Yeah. Well, you'll have to fill it out, Don, as well. And anybody else, like I said, you can head over uh, to go.itpro.tv uh, slash bracket dash 2020. Uh, download a copy of that and uh, take a few minutes and uh, fill it out and share it with us. Love to see what you come up with. Uh, also, uh, at itpro.tv slash webinars, you can sign up for our next webinar, which is actually uh, pretty timely. Uh, security on the go, protecting your devices, uh, data, and yourself uh, while working remotely. I know we uh, kind of tweaked this a uh, little bit recently to say, hey, uh, originally it was kind of about traveling and, and uh, working on the go, but now, uh, you know, with everyone working from home, we've we've got uh, even more focus on this. So uh, if you head over to go.itpro.tv, or excuse me, itpro.tv slash webinars, you can sign up for that one. Uh, you can also take a look at all of the past webinars there and uh, enjoy them as well uh, while you've got some time in your hands. Uh, also on the internet there, go.itpro.tv slash technado is where you can find out uh, about IT Pro TV and a coupon code for 30% off your personal subscription. You can also fill out a form for a business plan, find out all the great things that uh, are available to teams as well through our pro portal and things like that. Uh, that's all at go.itpro.tv slash technado. So definitely check that out. All right, guys. Well, Justin was missed today, but you know, it worked fine for them just like it worked fine last week without yep. Don. 
Well, you know, uh, for all our listeners at home, we uh, we may not actually all four be here in studio because we are less than 10 feet apart from each other. We are. Uh, so next week's podcast might be a little bit interesting. Tune in for that. But for all of you who are working from home or dealing with uh, friends, family, coworkers who were affected by COVID, uh, we certainly encourage you to stay safe out there and, uh, you know, leverage technology to its fullest to make sure that you are able to continue Working, communicating, and staying in touch with your family. Living. Living. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good it's important. Yeah, in yeah. that order, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, definitely stay safe out there. And yeah, we'll, maybe we'll test the limits of Zoom next week. Or we could have two people in here, you know, like where Daniel and I stand. That's far enough apart. And then we could have like two remote and... Or one over there. Can, we can use one of the mics on that yell side. across the room. <laughs> yeah, that seems fair. There's other cameras in the room. You could. Yeah, right? exactly. We can it's make this go. work. Yeah, we have microphones. This goes <laughs> to. Yeah. How long are these cables? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I'll, I'll be over there. Hey, Aaron. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your day to uh, to speak with us today. Oh, thanks very much. It was fun. And remember, uh, always yell "Look out!" before throwing your phone on the ground. And you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> it's it's common courtesy. Okay, it's it's like yelling four at the, on the golf course. My, my favorite Mitch Hedberg joke was always, "I've never uh, yelled four. I was always to- so busy yelling, ain't no way it's gonna hit that guy." <laughs> uh, Mitch Hedberg. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us, and hopefully we will see you next week right here on Technado with Don Pizzette.